and welcome to the Power Encourage podcast. Thank you all for tuning in today. My name is Eden and I have the pleasure of speaking today with the wonderful Fiorella Nash. For those of you who don't know, Fiorella Nash is internationally known as being a pro-life feminist. She's a broadcaster and makes regular appearances at national and international conferences. She's written many books, including The Abolition of Women, um, which I highly recommend, by the way. And she's also an award-winning novelist. So it's kind of like, what don't you do? Um, firstly, Fiorella, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Um, you're so accomplished. I feel like I must have missed something in that little intro bio. <laughs> Please tell me if uh, I have. I have a dog. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I also have four children. I should have said that first, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, in, in no order of preference. Um, <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? He's a chalky, teeny weeny dog. Oh, how sweet. Okay, so we have a dog and he's just been caught eating our cat's poop outside, which is kind of disgusting and vile, yeah. but um, hopefully your dog's better behaved. Um, usually at the beginning of our podcast, before we kind of delve into the abortion related topics, we kind of ask um, a fun question. So okay. my question, I was thinking and thinking, and I decided to ask what your favourite takeaway dinner is. <laughs> oh, um, I tell you what, no. Uh, it's a toss-up between. <laughs> no, I'll go with curry. Okay, curry. Yeah. Is there any specific type like korma, chicken tikka? Well, I do like korma, but my husband says it makes me sound like a wimp. No, you know what? Everyone says that they're like, "Oh, korma, that's just so like plain, boring." But I'm sorry, it's just like a nice, hearty food, and mm. anyone who disses it, I don't know. I just. I know that it's, people don't rate it, but I think it's personally great. It's low, it's creamy. It's Coconut. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so to start off with, um, I guess I'll ask you how you got involved in the whole pro-life movement in the first place. Um, you know, kind of what what made you take an interest in pro-life feminism particularly, um, and how you just hmm. yeah, entered the space really. Well, it, it happened by accident. Um, I, some of my friends and colleagues, they grew up in pro-life families. They were being taken on marches when they were five years old. It was not like that for me at all. I was very involved with the social justice scene when I was a student, you know, campaign against sanctions on Iraq, Palestinian solidarity, you name it. I was out there, Jubilee campaign, doing die-ins and freezing half to death um, and, you know, yeah, shouting out for for those who are vulnerable, um, yeah. those who are oppressed, and it's that that is the scene that I grew up with. In fact, um, my my parish in the eighties and nineties, it was really injustice and peace and all of that. Um, so that is one thing I did grow up with was a real sense of justice and the need to campaign for for those who are less fortunate. So that was my whole circle when I was a student initially, and. I only really got involved with the pro-life movement because I couldn't reconcile the fact that all the people I knew, they were really good people, they were completely in, in favour of abortion. Mm. And one minute it would be, it's not about me, it's all about others and looking after those who are less privileged and campaigning for, for human rights for all. Then as soon as the subject of abortion came up, it was, we all became raging capitalists mm. and it was me and it's all about me and my life and my career and what <laughs> I want. And, you know, if I have to sacrifice a baby, will I have to sacrifice a baby? And it just, it made no sense to me. Mm -hmm. And there was a big referendum in my third year as a student, about affiliating the university with the national abortion campaign as it was then. And that was how I then got involved. And in fact, the motion was defeated. And I realised that it's such a fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. 
But if you don't value your own children, if you don't value human life at its earliest and most vulnerable stages, then all other rights become meaningless, all other fights become meaningless. And that's really how I got involved. It was it was the, through that route. And feminism was something, certainly when I was growing up, I feel ashamed admitting this now, but feminism was embarrassing. It was really? what old ladies talk. Yes, it was like, like middle-aged no. women, middle women bleating about glass ceilings and things. And then <laughs> my father made me become a teacher and I wanted to be an actor. Um, wow. You know, it, was, it, was all, it was very sort of, it was very whingy, frankly. It was very self-pitying and very petty. Mm. You know, endless arguments because on Remembrance Sunday they said, greater love hath no man. No, it should have been greater love hath no person, and that makes everything fine, and women are immediately equal when um you know when you just fiddle about with the language. And yet at the same time, I was growing up in a culture that much as I love my my background and I have huge respect for the other way in which I was raised and the the um the culture in which I grew up, and I came to England as an immigrant, women were not equal. Mm. And th- that's just a fact. Uh Education was, and my parents really supported my education, but that was not always the case. There was always an assumption that women took on the caring roles Mm -hmm. and were expected to, uh, you know, defer to men in in many situations. And yet at the same time, my mother was working full time. We had a female prime minister. Um, So there was this huge conflict. On the one hand, you know, if I was at a family occasion, I was expected to serve the men. And yet, um, you know, we had girl power um really coming to the fore in the 80s and 90s so it was it was a conflict yeah on the yeah. one hand I thought feminism was not fit for purpose you know nobody wanted to to be like that and yet on the other hand I knew that women deserved better than this wow so when you when you kind of came to the conclusion about abortion and everything like that when you're at university was that something you did on your own or did you have a group of people around you supporting you um and doing you know advocating for the unborn with you Yes, absolutely. There was, it was partly because of the referendum, it brought a lot of people together. Mm-hmm. You always galvanise your op- opposition if you if you do something like that. And so yeah. I think a lot of pro-life people came out of the woodwork and there was a really strong group formed around, the, um, there was good. there was one uh, medical student in particular, Beata, I remember, and everyone sort of gathered around her to fight this. Yes. And, and so I was very fortunate that there were people there I could discuss the issues with. They organised talks. I remember uh, some quite high-profile people coming to speak to us because, of course, it's Cambridge. People want to come and mm. come and talk to Cambridge University. So I got the chance to speak to some people who had been involved in pro-life advocacy in Parliament, in medicine, um, and yeah. it was really an eye-opening yeah. experience, quite a journey. But feminism was something. I'm, I'm afraid the my animosity towards feminism only really ended thanks to a pro-life advocate. Really? Yeah. Who this was comes, that? How? Yeah. This comes as a huge surprise because, of course, all feminists assume, that all radical feminists yeah. rather, assume that you know, pro-life people are, you know, oh, self-hating women and all, all that rubbish, you know, mm-hmm. battered wife syndrome. Yes, I'm very yeah, subservient. Yeah, gender traitors. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I'm a very subservient person, you know. I, don't, I, I just, I just, you know, I do exactly what my priest tells me to do. Um, uh, but yes, I, I wrote a, a rather rude article, which again is one of many, my many youthful regrets, <laughs> about why I'm not a feminist. And it was very sarcastic. 
And it was like, well, you know, I actually don't have a problem with being a woman. So, you know, it rules me out straight away, you know, and um, and I don't see a problem with, you know, having a career in like, motherhood and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it was, you know, and I was poking fun at all the sort of types I've already mentioned. And I particularly said, you know, um, I don't, you know, I don't see how any any woman would would think it was liberating to kill their own baby. And a woman called Anne Farmer who she, she's a writer herself, she's, mm-hmm. she's written a number of books I later discovered, wrote me a letter. Now, this is a classic example of how if somebody really gets under your skin, never respond in anger. Yeah. Because clearly what I said really got on her nerves. Yeah. Because she knew I was wrong. But she sent me a book called Swimming Against the Tide about women who reject abortion and feminists who reject abortion. Yeah. And just had a post-it note on the front saying, um, you know, pro-life feminism does exist. Wow. And I read this book and it was a complete life changer. Wow. What did you say it was called? Swimming Against Swimming the Tide. Swimming Against the Tide. Did I'm she not write sure. it? Um, no, she didn't. It was it was a collection of essays, in fact, but she'd obviously been very influenced by it herself. And she she sent me this book. And unfortunately, I'm not sure it's even in print now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just very interesting seeing this completely different approach. And it was the first time I heard expressions like the colonization of the intellect, mm. that women are expected to be pro-abortion and women who aren't are treated very much the way the mm. early feminists were treated. And that this is a form of misogyny. We believe that women should have a voice, but only if you say what we tell you to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, women should speak out, but do follow the narrative, dear, or we will silence you. Yeah. And it made perfect sense because on the few occasions when I'd gone to women's campaign meetings and things like that, that was exactly what happened. I remember seeing um, a, fem- a feminist, not, not just a feminist, a women's a women's officer, you know, a college woman's officer who was supposed yeah. to be looking out for women's interests, raising her fist at a pro-life woman. Wow. Um, she was so angry. Wow. I will not accept this. Yeah. If a man did that... Yeah. This would be harassment. And totally. realizing that actually radical feminists were doing exactly the same to pro-life women yeah. that men do. Yeah. A certain kind of man does to women. Totally. Yeah. And and it was it was very eye-opening. And it, it just turned so many of my assumptions on their head. Mm. And of course, I got very interested in the early feminist, feminist for life of America. Um, Saren Foster actually came mm-hmm. to speak to us. Um, in Cambridge. Yeah. yeah. Oh, amazing. Um, so we, you know, got the chance really to hear it. All this, all this was new to me. I'd never, it had never occurred to me that feminism and pro-life could even occupy. Yeah, the go same together. Space. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which is kind of like, so how do you think that they do both mesh together in your experience? How did how how can one who isn't familiar, you know, reconcile being a feminist with being pro-life? Because I know that's a question that I've been asked a lot of times, especially from young people who would identify themselves as feminists, but they think that the feminism means you're pro-choice automatically, because that's what I think radical feminism has taught women these days. Um, so, yeah, how would you how would you say that they mesh together? Well, I think it's important, first of all, to make the point that there are different ki- kinds of feminism. It's a, it's a very broad church, if I may use that expression. Mm. Um, and radical feminism is very different from the early feminism that um, the early feminists would not recognise radical feminism mm-hmm. I think its current form but for me I was very influenced by Elizabeth Cady Stanton making the point that you know if society causes women 
to destroy the life of their unborn child. And they did use words like destroy the life and murder. Yeah. They didn't mix their mix their um, words at all. They didn't they didn't mince their words at all. Um, then society has wronged that woman. It, it is yeah. proof that 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 woman has been greatly wronged. That in a truly just society, there should be no violence. Mm-hmm. including violence to the unborn. So abortion is a weapon against women. It is not a helper of women. It's a mm-hmm. sign that society is failing women. Mm-hmm. And you see that time and time again with the sort of rhetoric that's used uh, to defend abortion. You know, women need this because they need to be protected. They need to be protected from their own bodies. They need to be, you know, they won't be able to have careers if they have a baby. Yeah. They won't be able to... Um, you know, they'll, they'll get trapped in relationships. So, oh, and there are so many ways in which abortion is treated as if it's some kind of get-out clause. When why is that necessary? Why does a strong woman need to choose between her career and her baby? Mm-hmm. Should that ever be the case? Why should a woman feel she needs to stay in an abusive relationship because she has a child? Mm-hmm. Uh, we know in reality that having a child is more likely to make you leave a relationship like that. But it seems that it's everything about the rhetoric of abortion assumes that women are stupid and passive. Yeah, totally. And, and so that the doctor is there, the abortionist is there to kind of, you know, rescue the woman as, as if we're in some kind of Victorian scenario. Yeah. Um, even the fact that women aren't told the truth about what abortion involves. What abortion involves, exactly. Yeah. Something that I found though online, especially like when I talk to other women and I say stuff like this and I say, you know, women shouldn't have to choose. Um, I often get attacked by pro-abortion women telling me, oh, well, we know, you know, we'd be making that choice wholeheartedly. We know exactly what entails in an abortion and you're treating us like we're stupid um, for saying that, you know, we don't need or we don't necessarily always want to choose 100% the choice of abortion does that make sense it's kind of like they're yeah. telling me that i'm telling them that they're stupid if i talk about anything negative to do with abortion and women yeah. so how would you, how would i respond to that how would well i think it's because it's coming down to the whole issue of choice again and the choice argument and i think we have to be clear that within any society including a free society mm. we do not in fact have the choice to do exactly what we want it's part of being a member of, a, of of any society that functions. Yeah. I mean, not even just a free society, any, any functional society that we have to accept that it isn't just about us and we do not have absolute freedom mm-hmm. to do exactly what we want. When we had lockdown, the overwhelming majority of people accepted being under what was effectively house arrest for months. Yeah. For the common good. For the common good, yeah. For the good of others. You know, it wasn't my body, my life, my right to decide at all. It was, please wear a mask, mm. please get vaccinated, please stay at home. Mm-hmm. And the overwhelming majority of people accepted that because at heart we know it isn't just about us, that there are always limits on choice if that mm. choice is going to hurt someone else. And I think it's important when approaching uh, people with that argument to make the point, I believe passionately in the right to bodily integrity. It is a very, very important right. We forget sometimes, I think, in the pro-life movement how important it is. It affects everything, the way teachers behave, the way the police Mm -hmm. behave. You know, all sorts of boundaries are there because of an understanding that people have a right um, to protect their own bodies and protect the perimeters of their own bodies. Mm -hmm. And that is very, very significant. So, for example, um, if, well... I always cite the example of a friend of mine who decided not to have chemotherapy. She had cancer. She didn't want chemo. The chemo would certainly have extended her life. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't like the fact that she chose not to have it. I did not agree with her, but I believed she had a right to do that, even though it would limit her life. Yes. Um, even though I thought she was making a bad choice, I still accepted her right to make that choice because mm-hmm. she was the one who had to go through with it. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to pregnancy, you have two conflicting rights. You have the right to bodily integrity, you have the right to life. And in the end, the right to life is the primordial right. It is the first right, without mm-hmm. which all other rights become meaningless. Mm-hmm. And so it's not saying that bodily integrity is not important, but where there is a conflict, the right to life has to be paramount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. That's a really actually good way to put it, especially with regards to like what you said about the pandemic and everyone, you know, making, you know, sacrificing for the common good. So I think I'll definitely use that in future. Um, When earlier on, we kind of mentioned radical feminism, and I know in the abolition of women, you also mentioned how like radical feminism betrays women and stuff like that. Um, But what would you say the difference is between like pro-life feminism or the feminism that you identify with and radical feminism? Well, I think that the fundamental difference is that we believe in the complementarity of the sexes, Mm -hmm. first of all, that men and women should work together for the common good, that we should not be in conflict. Yes, historically, we have been in conflict, Mm -hmm. but that is not good for men or women, Mm -hmm. that we should work together. We should accept the fact that we are equal but different, um, and we should be able to come together for the common good. So I think that's a that's a fairly major point. And I think that is an area we could discuss. I think that's not a completely polarizing position, mm-hmm. frankly. There are there are men who like to think that they're radical feminists who wear t-shirts and things, <laughs> and you know, to try to win votes at votes at elections and stuff like that. Don't get me started. But um, but I don't think that's an impossible conversation to have. But in the end, it's making the point that <clears throat> I do not have the right to commit an act of violence in order to get what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, in the end, there is simply no way of getting around the fact that abortion is an act of violence. Mm-hmm. Bernard Nathanson, who was, I think he thought he'd performed 60,000 abortions. Yeah. He, he wasn't sure. I suppose you lose count after a while. He was a founder member of NARAL. He was instrumental in getting abortion accepted and mm-hmm. legalized in the States made the point when he changed his mind that it's kind of difficult to pretend that you're not taking a human life when you're ripping the arms and legs off. Yeah. Fundamentally, that's what it's about. Yeah. And I make this point to feminists, and that's why I want to reach out to pro-abortion feminists, that if abortion did not involve the ending of a human life, I would not be campaigning against it. Yeah. Even if yeah. I disagreed with it in principle, there is no way I would yes. campaign. I would be I would be outside those clinics, probably trying to keep them open. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that is fundamentally what it's about. And I'm constantly hearing pro-abortion journalists and commentators angsting about what it what is it that makes anti-abortionists behave like this? Well, oh, it's because they want to control women. Oh, it's because they've got this problem or that problem. It's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And we don't make a secret about it. Yeah. We don't believe in killing. And that is the fundamental difference. 
Okay, good. that's really good to know. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Um, it's interesting because I, when I was living up in Scotland, I met up with quite a prolific um, pro-abortion feminist. And when we sat, we sat down for coffee and I was like explaining how I am a pro-life feminist and um, trying to just basically explain pro-life feminism to her. And at the end of the conversation, which was really good, really fruitful, we actually agreed on so many points. Um, I just said to her, look, the issue I have with the kind of pro-choice um, feminism is that, you know, you're saying that you offer all these other choices and, you you know, you're all for choice, but you actually don't advocate for any other choice than the choice of abortion. And I said, you know, would you start up a, um, a centre, a pregnancy centre to give out supplies to women who need it? Would you start one up with a pro-lifer? And she said, no. And I was like, OK, but why? And she said, oh, it's because you're pro-life. It's because you're against abortion. And I said, okay, but it wouldn't have anything to do with abortion. It would literally be providing support for women in crisis pregnancies, struggling parents. And her answer was still no. And I really couldn't believe that that was her answer when she's apparently so pro-choice. And the only reason why she would refuse something like that is because I'm against abortion. Like, I don't, that, that's just crazy to me, you know? Yeah. And I think it's just the fact that this is a, there's another issue that we, we need to really confront is the myth of choice mm. that actually we talk about choice a lot but fundamentally many women going into those facilities go there because they don't think they have a choice totally um, a study came out recently showing the huge percentage of women who feel coerced in some way or other into going into that place mm -hmm. and not always because you know someone's literally forcing them through the door but because we know the way control works there's emotional blackmail. There's, oh, no, you know this is a very bad idea. Oh, you'll make a terrible mother. You weren't really thinking of becoming a parent now, were you? And I'll leave you if you have the baby and it'll ruin your life. And, I mean, I've heard so many people say the words, yeah. she's ruined her life, you know, yeah. particularly when a very young girl gets pregnant. There's all these messages being thrown at a, a woman who is in an incredibly vulnerable position. You are very vulnerable in the early months of pregnancy. Yeah. You're most likely to be feeling rubbish yep. and throwing up. Your hormones are all over the place, particularly if you didn't expect to get pregnant. There's a, a, a huge sort of emotional roller coaster that you have to go through where you just accept the fact you are pregnant. So you're very vulnerable to this sort of coercion. And it is a problem. And we know it is. The fact that MSI, an abortion provider, went after two doctors who are providing abortion pill reversal treatment mm -hmm. is very telling because the very fact that there were women going to these doctors saying, I've taken the first pill and I, I don't want this to happen, somebody stop the process, showed that women, even after they have started the process, are not even sure or actually regretful of what they're doing. Yeah. You know, they're not getting the information. We've got a case in Malta at the moment. They're trying to legalise abortion uh, in Malta. And it's it's absolutely shameful because it's being done on the back of a case of an American couple who uh, had the situation where the placenta ruptured. Oh, and the, the woman wanted the woman wanted an abortion. Mm -hmm. And she was sort of obliquely comparing herself to Savita. You know, she was going to die. And it was awful. Her life was never in danger. Mm. Malta has if not the finest, one of the finest maternal health records in the world. She was yeah. being looked after by an excellent team of, of 
obstetricians who knew exactly what they were doing, they would never have allowed her, her life to be put in danger. But yeah. she went to the papers of the world saying, I just want to get out of this island with my life. I'm going to die. These Maltese pro-life laws are killing me. Oh, now, gosh. either she was deliberately lying or, as I suspect, someone lied to her. Yeah. Because she wasn't dying and she wasn't in danger of death. So mm -hmm. women are being coerced. Women are being given very deliberate and very dangerous misinformation. Abortion facilities don't even describe honestly what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I talk at length about that in my book, the fact that they don't even mention, they don't even describe accurately what abortion involves. Mm -hmm. This isn't choice. This is treating women like little children yeah, like to idiots. make them do what do as they're told. Um, I mean, just recently, my, my father's in hospital at the moment and he's got a heart condition. And we have had some very frank and very difficult conversations with his cardiology team about exactly what is wrong with him, mm -hmm. exactly what treatment will involve. It's very hard to hear, but you can't consent to anything unless you, you know don't know what you're doing. What you're doing, exactly. So, you know, where is the choice here? Where is the real consent? Yeah, completely. Um, and I, I know that I'm kind of like, this is not like devil's advocate kind of question, um, but we obviously see misogyny from that kind of area, from the pro-abortion lobby and these people who are being so disingenuous towards women and feeding them lies and misinformation surrounding abortions. Um, but would you also say that misogyny exists in the anti-abortion movement? <laughs> well... <laughs> I it's a tough it, question, it's but tough I, I'd say yes, it does. And it's not a good thing. And obviously it's good to eradicate it. But what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I will start by saying the men I worked with when I worked for the pro-life movement, which I did for many years before mm -hmm. becoming a freelance writer, were extremely respectful and you know, they employed me because I I had a, a degree and because I knew what I was doing. They were mm -hmm. and they were always you know, I was promoted a lot, uh, did a lot of talks, you know, uh, went on the media. There was no sense that they didn't regard me as an equal partner yes. in the in the organization. I will say that straight away within the broader movement. I think there is sometimes a misunderstanding about about the role of women sometimes. Mm -hmm. Possibly a lack of empathy, maybe a lack of experience. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was, uh, I just had my second baby. I'd had two babies quite close together, and I'd been very, very unwell with both of them. And I think my my younger baby was about eight weeks old, so it was quite soon after the birth. Oh. And I was at a meeting and I had a slightly lightheaded moment and sort of slipped into my chair and someone joked and went, oh, not again. <laughs> You're not pregnant again, are you, sort of thing. And I said, I actually don't know what I'd do if I found out I was pregnant a third time in, in yeah. 20 months. <laughs> and this woman who, a very good woman, um, but who had never had children, had never really had very much experience with pregnancy, mm -hmm. just went, well, you just rejoice and thank God, don't you? I thought, um, would you be really offended if I admitted that when I saw the little like the little pregnancy test thing and I was I sat on the edge of the be bed and went, oh my god, oh god, what am I going to do? Yeah, you know, and I think sometimes there can be a lack of understanding of how frightening yes pregnancy can be, and and that's not, I don't think that's misogyny outright. I think that's just that's just the need for a conversation. Yeah, um, but I don't think I don't think 
there is, as is sometimes suggested, this very nefarious reason. Oh, yeah, no. You know, that abortion is being rooted in. Yeah, abortion is being deliberately used to try to control women. To be honest, there are so many easier ways of making women's lives difficult than than joining the pro-life movement. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah, no, I completely get that. It's interesting because I've tried to be a bit more honest around this conversation with with people that I talk to on the streets about this issue as well. You know, the pro-life movement isn't perfect. There are people who don't really understand pregnancy, who don't really understand and even you know just how to speak to women how to speak to to, to people about abortion um, and I know I was like that as well when I started out I had no clue but you learn with practice um but I put a tweet out a few weeks ago just saying how because I'm 30 almost 37 weeks pregnant now and oh, yeah thank you um but it's really been different because again I've kind of grown up with this idea oh pregnancy pregnancy it's fine it's fine it's whatever you know it's you can do it but it is really difficult and I've just started to realize that and so I put something out just saying, you know, pregnancy is hard. Um, hmm. I'm not justifying abortion, but, you know, it's, it's difficult. And I just got so much backlash. It's like, oh, you're disgraceful. You know, how dare you? Yeah, this is a gift from God. You should be grateful. And it was just kind of like, come on, guys. You know, th- I'm just trying to acknowledge the fact that it is a difficult thing. It's yeah. okay. It's not. I'm not saying abortion's okay. I'm just saying it's difficult, and we can acknowledge that and be truthful with women and not lie to them, like the abortion industry lies to them. Mm. You know. Um, and the thing is, it's it's important because it's it shows the fact that you know, the human experience is complex, mm-hmm. um, and we are all complex. And actually, pregnancy is has its ups and downs, and yes. motherhood has its ups and downs at all stages. Um, I always make the point that when my third baby was born. Um, he, we nearly lost him. They thought he had meningitis. It was very, very frightening and he was in special care. I've never been so scared. And of course, by the time we got him home after the roller coaster of special care baby units and antibiotics and and all the treatments and things, it was all, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? Oh, lovely baby. And Part of me wanted to say, well, it is wonderful, but my life flashed before yeah, me giving birth totally. to this baby. You know, I've I've never ever cried so much mm. and been so frightened than than talking to the pediatrician about all the awful things they were going to have to do mm. to him. So it's it's just part of that acknowledgement. And I think there is I think when you, you got that backlash, I think there is a naivety, perhaps, mm. sometimes that we have to challenge. Um and it's not I don't think it's a, an insurmountable problem but i think it is just a question of experience it's getting getting people comfortable with mm-hmm. pregnancy there's there's always a danger i remember years and years ago a speaker from life called peter garrett making the point that there is always a danger that because the pro abortion movement is completely woman centric that we can be completely baby centric yes and helen watt in fact has mentioned this in her own mm-hmm. writings that there's this the sense that you know we can end up talking as if babies develop in some kind of a vacuum or so floating in a void rather yeah. than um <laughs> in a woman's body mm-hmm. and that to be truly pro life and i think this is what it means to be truly a pro life feminist is to be both baby and mother centric 100% yeah. yeah totally um in your experience, what is the biggest, uh, I guess, the biggest challenge that pro-life feminists face in the pro-life, but also in the pro-abortion movement? Because, again, I know there are some people who are pro-life that I've spoken to who, you know, think I'm absolutely terrible for even identifying myself as a pro-life feminist. And then obviously you have the pro-choice side who think you're terrible for identifying as, you know, a feminist in general. So what do you think are the challenges that you kind of face on both sides? Um, well. 
I think with getting more accepted in the pro-life movement, I think that's just something that has happened organically with a, a younger generation mm-hmm. of activists. I don't think that uh, that argument is so much of a problem. When I first started giving talks, I used to have people from both sides walk out on me. I felt it was probably the only time. Yeah, I think it was the only time ah! they ever had anything in common was that they both hated me. No. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there was there was one man who he always used to turn up. I'd see him at the back of the room. I thought, oh, here we go again. Oh. Um, and he obviously was making it his mission to try to convert me away from feminism mm-hmm. and back to my kitchen or something <laughs> and I could just see it coming and it only stopped because I think when that happens you have to be just completely frank yeah and um <laughs> on one occasion this person stood up and just said oh don't you agree we don't need pro-life feminism this was like we don't need it because you know um uh we've got we've got you know pro-life women and you know you're all doing such a jolly good job and all the rest mm. and I just had to say well I obviously think I obviously don't agree with you that we don't need pro-life feminism because I've just spent 45 minutes explaining why we do. Um, So (laughs) please stop. Just stop. Uh, I think that's just something that you can see. There's a there's a very different attitude between generations. There always is. When I when I first even introduced the idea of pro-life feminism when I was working at SPUC, I remember John Smeaton just saying to me, look, I'm a different generation of activist. Mm -hmm. I need to know more about this, please. Let's Mm -hmm. talk. Yeah, you know, he was aware that it would not have been not so much that it wouldn't have worked, but it was just not something anyone considered of his generation because yes. feminism was just regarded as the baddie, yes. and you know nobody was interested in even discussing it. Whereas my generation saw things very differently. So I think when it comes to the pro life movement, it's it's something that's just it is just changing. You know, yes. as you have more women involved, more women in high levels, uh, that's just that's something that we you know I think that's one of the success stories. The other side, it's much harder because, whereas John Smeaton said, let's talk about it, I very rarely get someone who is pro-abortion feminist who is prepared to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy. When I have been able to, we've been able to have a conversation and discovered what we have in common. But, yeah. you know, when you, you're you up against, say, the head of the Women's Equality Party and they're claiming we want to listen to all women and then they do absolutely everything possible to stop you from even opening your mouth. Yeah. That's where it's a challenge. And I think the challenge is to not be silent. Mm-hmm. It's to keep talking, not to be put off. And um, There's a lot of hostility. I mean, you talk about the backlash. When pro-life feminists use the language of feminism, there tends to be a big backlash. Yeah, they hate it. I don't care. I don't care. Um, you know, you're not going to tell me how I may identify. Mm. You know, in the in the mm. world of identity politics, how dare anyone tell me I'm not really a feminist? Ooh, I love that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> um, yeah, and and yes, I will express an opinion, even if you don't like it, because that's what the early feminists were campaigning for. Mm-hmm. You know, it was for women to be taken seriously in the public forum. So I think it is much more of an uphill battle, though. Mm-hmm. It is much more of an uphill battle. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I guess kind of like a last question would be how what advice do you have for youth of the UK and and people who kind of want to identify as pro-life feminists but don't aren't quite sure how to? Don't let anybody stop you for a start. Just get out there, um, find sympathetic groups like abortion resistance who you can join. Uh, who will take you seriously, who will help you to develop your ideas, develop your campaigning. And 
Do not allow anybody to stop you. There was a wonderful example of this in the States some years ago where there was the um, March for Women's Lives and a pro-life feminist group turned up. They were told they could not march. So they went right to the front and unrolled their banner and they marched anyway. Amazing. That's it's. You don't have to take no for an answer. Please never take no for an answer. Love that. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a really good discussion. And it's nice as well because it's, I think, yeah, getting to kind of, yeah, talk about feminism with regards to pro-life and also the pro-choice side, I think has been really helpful, um, definitely for me and probably for our listeners as well. Um, And it's been, as always, an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, Before I kind of say all the goodbye, this is where we find us, where can people find you um, and keep up with you moving forward? I'm on Instagram and I have an author page on my publisher's website, Ignatius Press. Uh, You can also find me on Amazon. Amazing. And guys, I would recommend everyone who's listening, if you haven't already, buy The Abolition of Women. It is absolutely fantastic book um and i've read it uh, a couple times so it's really really helpful and it's very good to help you with your discussion with other people um with regards to pro-life feminism so thank you all for tuning in please do give us a follow on all of our social media platforms we are our at is at abortion resist if you have any thoughts or requests or suggestions for future podcasts or guests please do get in touch with us through our website abortionresistance.org.uk um and everyone have a lovely week and keep resisting and thank you so much for your other again Wonderful. Thank you. Take care.